Hi, guys. Welcome to the Church Split. My name is Will. We got Brian with us today. What's up, heretics? And you guys know what we do here. We help you escape your church's echo chamber, learn to think biblically, and of course, challenge the status quo, which always needs challenging, especially TikTok exvangelicals. They definitely yes. are status quo that need to be questioned. <laughs> challenge their new atheism edginess. <laughs> yes, and tell them that they're not as smart as they think they are. So um, today we are going to be responding to Christy Burke. She is a very famous uh, like deconstructionist on TikTok who now has a YouTube channel. And we just kind of want to get into that. She has uh, quite a few videos out. And I mean, I, we could probably spend the next year responding to her, but uh, we're not going to. But one of the things that or we might, I don't know, we, we might feel froggy. We might just we'll do see. it. We'll, we'll see. We we get, if we run out of ideas, we'll just see what crazy crap she said this week and then respond to it. There you go. So one of the things that, uh, by the way, of course, like subscribe, all that stuff, Patreon. Yep. Okay. Now that we got the internet plugs over, uh, I feel like you have to say it, but anyhow, but she has a video uh, of like the five Bible verses that led her to deconstruction. And I found it when I was looking for something else entirely unrelated and for some reason it populated. And so I watched it and I was so annoyed with the first three minutes. I sent it to Brian and then it was, <laughs> and Brian and I was annoyed. <laughs> and then Brian was annoyed. We, we just like to share our pain. But what's funny is I didn't watch the whole thing. So you were texting me your thoughts and annoyances. And I'm like, I haven't watched this yet. You, you're like, you sent me this entire video and you haven't even watched it yet. I'm like, I, I just knew that it was going to be good. I didn't know it was going to be so good that we needed to respond to it. But um, yes. So we wanted to kind of just jump into this a little bit, Brian. Is there something you want to say before we get into Chrissy Burke, what specifically she says? Yeah, I think just part of it is we'll kind of get into this kind of intro, but just realize that some of the things she says in the intro and kind of how she says her goals and how to think um, she won't actually adhere to. Um, so there's some there's some built in defeaters and hypocrisy and how she's kind of going going about her exegesis in these five verses. Um, and we're going to do this as a two parter because uh, we think this might be a little bit longer and allow us to do uh, each of the five sets of verses. She has justice. Right. And the other thing is, is like I, I get why people deconstruct um, a lot of times if you're raised in hyper fundamentalism or something like that, you are not very well equipped to understand your Bible because most everything that you hear is people ranting on hobby horses versus the spat out out of context and use more like a battering ram. But there's also a problem with once you start questioning things just running with your own interpretations now as opposed to actually trying to gain understanding of what the text is trying to say if you read a text and it, it seems like it says something to you plainly you're going to want to dig deep for a while to make sure that you are understanding that properly because then you can run into really dumb situations where you actually might end up throwing your faith out the window for no reason for no reason that was necessary and then and what's frustrating is that this deconstruction phase um, it, I feel like ha that's like the whole thing with deconstructionism right now. It's, like, it's a phase, mom. Um, <laughs> it's, it's this whole phase of exvangelicalism is really just a lot of misunderstanding of things. And then people telling the story and suddenly thinking that they are someone that should be taken seriously in this area. And I, and I hate the fact that we have to even respond to it because it, with even a bird's eye view of just a quick skim over, one can easily find that most of these objections don't 
actually follow. So why are we giving these people platforms? But we have given them platforms, so we need to keep responding to this sort of thing. Because this is the sort of thing that I think that, because most people see it on TikTok or whatever, because TikTok is so explosive, I think more people see this sort of thing than more the more rigorous academic stuff. So I think we have to do more responses to this sort of thing, unfortunately, than what we would consider actually academic objections. You know what I mean? Yep, exactly. And obviously this falls into the realm of church splitting topics, right? If if your church becomes deconstructionist without reconstructing, then you you just have a lot of apostates. And I think we've we've said that several times on this channel is, is deconstruction without reconstruction, just apostasy. So you can give it a, a fancy name. You can call yourself an ex-evangelical or a deconstruction former Christian. But really what you are is you're an, you're an apostate that has left Christianity for usually some pretty poor reasons. And I think in some of the videos we talked about this already, that we don't put the blame fully on, on these people that have apostatized because some of the environment they've grown up in has contributed to this. Um, legalism on top of the gospel definitely seems to contribute to this because once you start shedding the legalism, you can see, well, the things that they're not saying doesn't, it doesn't comport with scripture. Um, you, you have the tendency to throw out the entire baby with the bathwater and throw Christianity out the window too, because he was saying all these things. Some of it was true. How do you know that all of it isn't true? So just throw it all out. And so put a little bit of onus on kind of the, probably the environment that she grew up in and then her attitude towards uh, scripture. And we'll see too, it's a little bit of Calvinism that she was exposed to that helped pull that string initially for her, which I think is kind of fascinating. I never would have guessed that Calvinism could have created apostates. That's crazy. Yeah, we would have never said anything like that before. Brand never. new. <laughs> Brand new. Um, we're going to get ourselves in trouble. All right, but yes. So I guess enough talking about it. Let's just jump into this thing and get it rolling. Uh, let's listen to what Christy Burke has to say. Hi, guys. Welcome back to my channel where we deconstruct all of the things we were taught not to question growing up in the evangelical, fundamentalist, or conservative Christian churches. My name is Christy, and I grew up in the Baptist church, and I was a Christian until my early 20s when I deconstructed everything I knew about my faith and about my reality, and I set off on a journey to find truth. It has now been 13 plus years later. I have not found the ultimate truth, but I think that's the point. I think the point is to get to a point where you become comfortable just saying, I don't know. I don't know what's beyond this. I don't know who God is. I don't know what my purpose here is on earth. I'm just, I'm going to live and I'm going to enjoy it. And um, I'm not going to hold myself accountable to all of these rules and obligations that were put upon me by other people. My goal here is to help and encourage you to find your own path and to help you deconstruct and sort through these things that, again, we weren't allowed to question when we were growing up in the church. So today I want to talk about five Bible. Okay, so I first feel like we should talk about her little intro here because she yeah. says a lot. And so right off the bat, you get exactly what her plan is. Like her, her goal is to help people deconstruct, which... <laughs> Like, congratulations. Um, but yeah, kind of reminds me of the Rhett and Link idea. Like once you've you've shed Christianity, you just have this idea that everyone around you needs to shed it, too. Which is kind of it's somehow like a validation to you walking away, which I mean, it makes sense why Christians want people to become Christians, because we think it's the ultimate truth that saves you from eternal death. Mm -hmm. But 
it doesn't really make much sense for a deconstructionist to want to help other people deconstruct because as she said right here, she doesn't know what her ultimate point is to the universe. So I guess why help people if there's no real point to it? Um, yeah. But anyway, she's so she also says like she they're here to help people who, you know, who are questioning things that they're never allowed to question in hyper fundamentalism. Uh, and of course, my thing is, is like it's not special <laughs> to ask questions like there's this weird idea in the deconstruction community that like only they ask questions. But yeah. as we, we recently had Dr. Tim Stratton out of the free thinking ministries. And of course, if there is no God, the reality is you are not a free thinker. You can't freely think anyway. So you're epistemologically and philosophically and just in reality, your objections don't even get off the ground. But yeah, I just find it funny that people think that, oh, well, you're not allowed to ask questions in, in Christianity. No, only in we really weird groups are you not allowed to ask questions. Yeah, which ironically, I think she's inferring it, at least for her upbringing. But then when she brings up her second passage, she talks about how she went to her pastor, had him over for dinner and asked him that question. I was like, wait, I thought you're not supposed to question this. Now you can have him over for dinner and question it and and be kind of cruel to him face to face. <laughs> yeah, although he uh, although it's funny because it, she didn't actually say like anything about him, at least in this video, uh, that he was nasty to her or anything either. So apparently he must have been OK with her, at least asking some questions. Yeah, uh, no, it's not like he was just like, no, that's that's kind of, he gave kind of a milquetoast answer. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, exactly. But the point. So she says that the point is to say that you don't know and that's OK. And like there's a few things on that, like. I know it's presented in a way to convey like a sense of humility and humble maturity. But the issue is that she hasn't found the, as she says, ultimate truth. And she has cast off these other rules people have thrown on her. When in reality, she has just gone into really epistemological no man's land where no one is right. No one is wrong except Christians. Right. She knows they're definitely wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of funny because she says, like, I've not found the ultimate truth, but I think that's the point. And I'm like, that's a truth claim. You're actually making a statement of an ultimate truth, ironically, right, that, by saying there isn't one. Yeah, the ultimate truth is that there isn't really a truth. The ultimate truth is that we really don't have to know these things. And the ultimate truth is that you can't know ultimate truth. Wait, what? Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, then, yeah, the whole helping people deconstruct thing, I wanted to hammer on that, too, as well. Yeah. So Christy and the rest of the TikTok atheism present themselves as people who are just incorrectly asking questions that we're not allowed. But really, she puts her motive in the forefront. She really wants to help people deconstruct. And this is why I say all the time as a student director and you, Brian, who works with discipling people as well, like I tell people all the time, like, no, no, they actually do come for your kids. They want converts or deconverts mm -hmm. and converts into their beliefs. Like her goal is to get people to deconstruct. She and so don't think that for a minute that all this is this innocent, uh, like this is actually a thing I see in the philosophical apologetics community regularly. And Brian, I'm sure you have plenty of thoughts on this, but we hear regularly that the only reason why people are atheists, like a lot of people are atheists due to real intellectual objections. And I'm sure there can be maybe a handful of those that might be the exceptions to the rule. But generally speaking, it's not that <laughs> that's holding them back. It's usually any number of other uh desires that they might have either uh sexual desires or not as she said casting basically the chains of rules of people off of her she want the money to live freely the way you want to um so yeah, really I agree with that completely and i think part of it is, is too is is there atheist arguments that are feigning scientific objection objectionality and then 
when not faced with a valid or good argument from the Christian side, appear as as a real strong defeater against Christianity. And they're just not. Um, right. You just have ill-equipped atheists talking to ill-equipped Christians, and whoever sounds the most confident and arrogant in their answer gets the win. Um, it's not really about scientific scrutiny. It's not really about epistemology. It's it's really about posturing. Right. One hundred percent. And again, right here, we see the fact that they do want to deconvert children. They want to deconvert people. They that's their goal. So with us, stop. like I, I think I can stop pretending like every single person on that side is an honest interlocutor when I see so much purposeful misrepresentation and the fact that you guys do say what your goal is at the very forefront, which is to get people out of my uh, out of our faith, which is why it's funny when they act like, well, why you guys are so hostile to us? You act like we're the enemy. Well, if you're actually trying to, if you're openly saying you're targeting to deconstruct people and deconvert people, yeah, you set yourself against a belief system uh, that other people hold near and dear. So don't get mad at us when we defend ourselves, essentially. Like, yeah. Well, she's just like, I'm just going to help you find your own path and to help you dis- deconstruct. I'm like, what if my path isn't to deconstruct? What my path is to maintain my faith and to strengthen my faith and walk closer to Christ's example in my life? What if it isn't to follow some TikTok edgy atheist and some poor exegesis of some passage that she heard from a friend that she decided to make a YouTube video of? Like, maybe that's not my path. So I think it's just kind of presumptuous that that's everyone's path and that she thinks she can help with that. Because really, like you said, she's just trying to sow doubt in things that she doesn't know much about. And even to her point, the ultimate truth is to say, I don't know, and that's be okay with it. But she doesn't seem to be okay with not knowing. Exactly. Let's see if in this video, as she keeps going, if she actually says the words, I don't know, because she seems to be claiming like she knows a lot about the Bible here. (laughs) So uh, anyway, uh, she goes, I'm not going to hold myself accountable to all these rules and obligations that were put upon me by other people. But again, this is kind of showing your real kind of motive, which is I don't want to be held accountable to Christian morality, which I is fine. That's your prerogative, but it really does show that it's not some sort of intellectual pursuit. It's really wanting to just be, do what you want to do. Uh, let's see. And she to says just some other deconstructionists who are attempting to reconstruct and they are shedding man-made rules of legalism from their church. Then yeah. Okay. I can understand the idea of not wanting to say, do what other people say you have to do, but then what is the source of morality what is the source of how you're supposed to conduct your life um and usually uh when a christian's deconstructing and with a purpose of reconstructing they're going back to scripture and saying what does it actually say what does god actually say the truth is and she seems to kind of flirt with that but then leave it at the door exactly so let's let's keep trucking and see what else we got going on here bible verses that sparked my deconstruction and caused me to inevitably lose my faith. There are a lot of unsavory things in the Bible, but these specifically are verses that I felt I could not justify. I could not find a good reason that they would be in the Bible, that they would be a part of God's divine inspired word. And it just made me realize that this is a man-made book written and used as a tool of oppression. If you do like what I do here and you want to support me, you can do that by watching the video all the way through, by liking it when it's done, and then also leaving a positive comment. If you are not already subscribed, you should be, and you should be ringing the notification bell, because if you don't ring the bell, then you won't be notified when I post new content. 
Don't forget about my merch shop, jezebelvibes.com slash shop, where I take hate comments that I've received and reclaim them on clothing. Oh, if you want to be shirt twins, if you want to support me, if you just want to wear something that's a little irreverent and expresses your attitude toward traditional Christian values, just go to jezebelvibes.com slash shop or visit the link in the description. So again, back to say what your uh, motivations are right off the are right off the gate. And this again, tell again, it's not an, always an intellectual pursuit. I mean, a lot of these people they wear their rebellion proudly, and I mm-hmm. and God's law is written on their hearts. Uh, like I very much affirm that. Like she, there's a reason why she's like, if you want to wear something irreverent, right? She even she even knows what what it is. But before we get into all that. Let's talk about the unsavory things in the Bible, Brian. Yeah, lots of unsavory things in the Bible. This is true, but she's going to commit the is-ought fallacy here in reading Scripture, where there are things in Scripture that are describing an event or describing how someone feels that aren't a command on how we're supposed to act. And she's going to commit this over and over again in Scripture. Um, So, yes, there are some unsavory things, because Scripture is actually talking about real life. And it's talking about real ancient Near Eastern life which is way more barbaric than we are in our little uh air-conditioned homes in the west with our youtube access and ability to reach thousands of people to let them know what our opinion is and say how it's better than everyone else's yeah there's nothing worse than a bunch of people trying to lecture me about the brutality of the bible in their post geneva convention world yeah <laughs> like uh so and, and so for those who are not familiar the is ought fallacy is a is something that uh TikTok atheists and a lot of modern atheists commit all the time which is just because that it is in the bible means it ought to have been that way uh that's not true there are like for example uh there are clauses on divorce right it says that god hates divorce that the is is the fact that god wishes that mankind wouldn't divorce he wished that divorce wasn't necessary but even in what jeremiah 3 8 god divorced israel <laughs> for idolatry so there is this very real thing just because there is divorce doesn't mean it ought to be that way but because people are fallen or things are imperfect there is a way for that to be reconciled just because there is murder in the bible doesn't mean it ought to be that way so the issue is is the is ought fallacy and people will pick apart different parts of the law like the law of moses which we'll see her do here in a here in a few minutes uh later on in the video and they don't understand the world in which those laws are taking place and because of that, they they go, well, because this is there, must be God's okay with us. Like, no, God's saying that these situations are situations that people might have to deal with in the ancient Near Eastern world. And when these things happen, this is how you could respond to them and try to get some commodicum of justice back to this situation of injustice, right? Yeah. So anyway, we'll she talk says, more about that. Yeah, and she says too that she couldn't justify any of these verses. She just couldn't find a good reason, a good response to any of these. I'm like, did you look like at all? Maybe she couldn't find it on, on tick on her TikTok feed. Maybe that's as far as she looked. Um, clearly she did talk to her pastor about one of these, but when he gave her essentially the answer that he expected to, she was like, Oh, yep. No good reason. I guess I'm right. And Christianity's wrong. And the Bible's not inspired. Um, she just kind of takes this like maybe hyper fundamentalist wooden view of scripture in the way that she's reading it. And she and she's missing a lot of context. Unfortunately, in order to take the, the Bible in its literal correct uh, audience and fashion, you have to understand the context of what you're reading. And that right. might take a little bit more digging than just reading the one verse out of context and making a video about it. 
Right. And that's why we have to apply proper hermeneutical principles. And if you're raised hyper-fundamentalist, I get it. You, you were given a very wooden approach to the Bible, and you don't truly have a good understanding of what was written 5,000 years ago, what was meant by then. But that's the problem with reading with Western eyes. I get that. Like, I mean, and so I can uh, attribute, yes, I can understand some misunderstandings. But, you know, I definitely realized that in my late teens, right? Like I was 1920 and I started asking questions and I'm still a Christian because I just dug and dug and dug because I felt like in a lot of ways, I'm like, okay, if Christianity spread across the entire known world uh, has had such a positive impact on society, uh, like even the scientific revolution that everyone wants to say disproved God was mostly Christians pushing for that. You have all the, like there's like Christianity has made a positive impact on the world. If you removed Christianity from the world, most of your funding for all like humanitarian efforts would just go out the window because oddly enough, atheists don't really contribute to their society uh, financially uh, nearly as much as people like Christians or even Muslims, honestly. Um, so, and by the way, you can look, you can fact check that the numbers don't lie, but uh, <laughs> well, I think that's the thing too is when she calls us these unsavory, Right. I don't even know if she's justified in using that claim. Right. We're less than two minutes into her video and she's already making truth claims after saying that the point is to just say and be comfortable with saying, I don't know. But she's just saying right now she does know that there's a lot of unsavory things in the Bible. But it's also convenient is that people always bring up the unsavory things in the Bible and then they uh, push atheism as if atheism itself has not had a bunch of unsavory things done in its name, too. But yeah. whatever. Guess we're really we are not familiar with the 1940s. So uh, <laughs> what was your thought on the uh, man made book of oppression? <laughs> so that is actually one of the cringy like that. That is the 21st century worldview. Of course, it would be because everything now is looked at as oppression and oppressor. That's how mm -hmm. we view everything. And oh, is this this book made to control people to oppress people? It was no actually. Are you familiar with church history? Do you realize it was Christians who were oppressed, right? Like Christians being thrown in coliseums and torn apart by lions, burned alive, uh, being like beheaded. You know, that's how half the people died in the new Testament, right? Like Paul was in prison and oppressed and killed after like, oppressing Christians for a while. <laughs> after he was the oppressor, he <laughs> became the oppressed. <laughs> like, he it's became a, Christian. He was no longer the oppressor. <laughs> I guess I, I, it's, a, it's disgusting. Like, it's like this, you and know, this is the, new Testament. <laughs> it's so disrespectful. It's like, it is, it is, and it's like that's what Christianity did for the longest time. And then people always want to bring up the Crusades, but uh, the Crusades were justified. Uh, I, I, I'm not going to get into that, but I think they were. Um, now, granted, I'm sure there there is plenty of things that happened that are were not the best way, but I think the fighting for uh, the protection of people against radical Islam was an okay thing for Christians to do. Uh, now, of course, the Middle Ages get a little dicey, say with the Reformation. I definitely know some nasty things happened there, um, yeah. but at that point. Every all of society was disgusting. So, um, one thing but, I want to say last about her little intro is her merch stuff. And I'm just gonna, this again, I'm gonna beat this horse dead on this video. On the next video, is one of the search says actually two of them say no gods is is what the the merch has as its title. And I thought that was kind of funny because that once again a truth came my claim. I thought she was all about saying I don't know, but here we go even in her merch store. <laughs> Well, it's the fake humility. Atheist claims. Yeah, exactly. She's just pretending to be humble. Well, and that, and that's actually kind of like a it's like a virtue signal in of itself. Uh, and even the Christian YouTube culture, which you and I are in, it's just like 
there is a fake humility that a lot of people will have at the beginning of their thing. And then they completely shift tone later on. And I don't know. I think that's one of the things that you and I were instantly like, this is what we're going to do. <laughs> and some people don't like the tone, but at least, you know, you're, you're getting what you're getting. It's not a fake humility. There is yeah, humility, but, you. but I'm also not going to sit there and pretend like I'm not confident in some of the things I say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and nor am I going to say, I don't make truth claims. I do make truth claims. Uh, but the other thing I, I do want to make sure that she is aware of uh, is that how her ignorance is just bleeding through by calling the Bible a tool of oppression. It's <laughs> the fact that if you look at Hammurabi laws and every other laws on the planet, which we will look at uh, later on in this a little bit, uh, you will find that actually ancient Israel was a haven of compassion that most people would have been dying to join, which is why they had laws about people who could join them, because people did want to join them so much so that Egyptians in a mixed multitude left the greatest ancient empire of its time, Egypt, to be with Israelites. So <laughs> don't give me this whole tool of oppression nonsense. It was actually, and even all those Western values of being able to question having free speech. I know she has a video apparently on the 10 commandments too, but it's like, oh, you boy. think murder is wrong. You think all these other things are wrong. Uh, congratulations. That was the Bible <laughs> that was press. That was, and the Christians that pushed for that. So a lot of those like cushy insulated 21st century American values that you're enjoying, you can thank Christianity for that. You know, the tool of oppression that freed you to be able to do those things. Anyway, rant is over. Let's let's get into the first verse, which is from Romans 9. So the first passage I want to talk about is from Romans 9, which was the starting point of my deconstruction journey. Up until the point that I read and studied and chewed on the words in Romans 9, I believed in a God who created all people, gave them free will, and that he wanted all people to be saved, but he couldn't violate their free will to save them. And that it was the most loving thing he could do to give people freedom. And within that freedom, they could either choose him and go to heaven or they could reject him and go to hell. And that would be entirely their choice. I was an evangelist, so I believed in going out into my communities, spreading the word, trying to win as many souls as possible because I looked around and there were people going to hell and I didn't want that to happen. But when I was 17 years old, I was introduced to the concept of Calvinism. And when I was introduced to this, I said, no way. There's no way that God created people just to go to hell. And then I read Romans 9, starting in verse 16. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for his glory, even us, whom he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? It says 
it's starting in verse 16. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy, meaning there is nothing about you that can come to God and choose. God has to choose you. It says in verse 18, therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. When Christians talk about you have a hardened heart against God, the Bible says that God's the one that hardened it. And then it, it even goes on to ask, well, then why does God still blame us? You know, if, if he created this way, how come he blames us? And Paul is saying, who are you to question God? How can the clay question the potter and ask, why have you made me like this? It says, what if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? If he has decided he wants to create you just to destroy you, then he's going to do that. And that's his right. You don't get to question that. And realizing this changed everything about my perspective of God. Realizing this made me see a God who did not desire people to be saved, but instead creates people as puppets, does what he wants with them, and then tells them you're not allowed to question it. That is just in direct contradiction to any kind of a loving, kind um, father God that I was taught growing up in the church. I was fed one version of God who was a loving father, but I'm learning about this completely different God um, who intentionally creates people to go to hell. That right there really shattered my perception of God. It really caused me to start this journey of, of questioning what I believed and why I believed it. I'll agree with her on this point <laughs> that yes, if Calvinism was true, it would bring a lot of questions about God to the forefront. And I also want, if my Calvinist brothers and sisters are watching this, I want them to also make note that remember, God declared from eternity past that she come to understand the truth of Calvinism and found it distasteful and walked away. That that's what God declared from eternity past. Cause she's not wrong when she talks about not having free will and, and how God created people to go to hell as uh, John MacArthur even quoted uh, and said that God declared from eternity past whether or not he would save you. And people then say, I don't understand Calvinism. I guess when you quote Calvinists, you don't understand Calvinism. But anyway, uh, however, I feel like she doesn't realize that there are is 2000 years of church history of people yeah. who have read Romans 9 who are not Calvinists who have no problem with Romans 9 because they understand it within context. They understand what is actually being said, and that is not dealing with individual salvation. Uh, that's one of the biggest things that people have. Like she says, just introduces this concept of Calvinism, but then it's like, did you look at alternative readings? You just really think that the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, a Baptist, Free Will Baptist, but that these that all these other groups have never read Romans nine before. Yeah, and to give the Calvinists a bone here, when they say, "Oh man." all these other Christians that are non-Calvinists, they're just scared of Romans 9. I'm not sure she read Romans 9 before the age of 17 after she's saying she's evangelizing because she's like, oh, I was introduced to Calvinism and that sounded bad. And then I read Romans 9. And to the, give her benefit now, it sounds like maybe again, but she kind of infers like it's the first time she really read it. 
I'm like, oh boy, she's doing exactly what all the Calvinists say. You're scared of Romans 9. <laughs> well, also, I mean, here's the other thing. She's 17 at this point, right? She's, she, I don't know how old she is, but she said it's been like 13 years. So I'm guessing 17, 18 is when she probably deconstructed. So mm -hmm. she's probably 30, 31, 32. She's probably about my age, uh, maybe a little bit younger, but around, about around my age. And the other thing is, is that you don't know anything about anything at 17 years old when it comes to theology. Uh, actually, some of you do. Like, so, uh, I think some of my students here and some of my students are like 13 and they know quite a bit about a lot of stuff. And you could definitely tell their mom was, their grandma's been like, she's a published author of Bible stuff because they, I'm like, you shouldn't yeah. know that. How do you I know that? <laughs> but generally speaking, uh, you don't know anything about anything. And it's like, you, file, you found these things at 17 and now you're in your 30s, uh, likely, talking like you know what is truly being said and it's like have you ever like again you really think i've never read romans 9 i have entire lesson plans teaching through romans 9 so i feel like we should address it but i do agree with her that calvinism is a problem and i agree with her on all her objections to it that it would shatter one's perception of god however i don't believe calvinism is true for a single second it is actually so far off my radar as to what could possibly even be true at this point that I, I read Romans 9 and I don't see how anyone has ever really read it the way that it, it is often read. It is so far off my radar. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's kind of interesting, though, that this is what led led her down this path. And if any any Calvinists are watching, go, no, 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 like she says, this is what started it. She said this is and this is the first of the five passages that she has titled this as the verses that helped her caused her to lose her faith. And she says, realizing this changed my entire perspective on God, made me see a God who did not desire people to be saved. And she, when she says that God does not desire people to be saved, that is what a lot of Calvinists will say. And they will say that about Romans 9, vessels of wrath, right? They will say that as, as a personal non-salvation verse, that he is choosing to create people from eternity past for destruction only. Mm -hmm. And and then she says this. So this is uh, in contradiction to the loving God that she was taught while she was growing up. And she is right because it is <laughs> right. Exactly. And so she reads this uh, Calvinist interpretation and reads it like she does know. Right. So she absolutely knows that Calvin, if we're going to beat that horse dead, like you said, but we're just want to make sure we're aware that she's can't hold her own standard. But the mm -hmm. Bible doesn't say God is the one. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? There's a lot of things. So first off, the Rome. I guess we should probably just kind of unpack a little bit of the Romans nine stuff. Now, yeah. Brian and I have covered Romans nine in different ways throughout the the entirety of this program, but um, I do want to make sure I, I plug Trinity Radio with Braxton Hunter, Jonathan Pritchett, and Dr. Layton Flowers joined them in a response to Christy Burke's objection to Romans nine, and they have a two hour episode just unpacking Romans nine in and of itself with her objection so you can check it out there plenty of stuff there but brian and i will kind of do an overview here of romans 9 a little bit so you go ahead and kick us off there brian yeah and i would just say we also had an author on just last month or maybe it was two months ago um it's the holiday season i can't remember anything anymore but about he wrote a book specifically on just romans 9 an entire yeah. book and we have an hour and a half interview on it so we have a lot of content about romans 9 here if you're curious but um 
yeah, I think part of it is, you know, like you said, the Bible doesn't say God is the one who hardened it. Even if you go back and read Exodus about Pharaoh, Pharaoh is the one who hardened his heart first. <laughs> if you're going to use that and say, oh, God, God's already, he's quickening, right? He's quickening what is the state of Pharaoh already. And I think part of it, you can say, I like Wheaton Flowers' uh, perspective on this, that the hardening of a heart is actually a form of mercy, right? Because God could have destroyed Pharaoh for him claiming to be God and going against God, not following him and oppressing God's people. Um, he could just destroy him, kill him dead, or he could raise him up and use him and use the oppression to bring more people to God. Right. And we, we see that in Hebrews 11 talks about, right. Specifically the prostitute who through hearing the story of the Hebrews being uh, released and escaping uh, Pharaoh's rule is the reason why she became a believer. So that is a form of mercy. God extended his life in order to fulfill his own will. And it's worth noting that in the church, like this wasn't even the interpretation for the first few hundred years of the church until Augustine, you know, in about 400 AD actually championed it. So it's important to note that, and uh, there's actually, most scholars reject that interpretation of Romans 9, and there's a, a, actually a large group of even Calvinist scholars who reject that particular interpretation of Romans 9. So it's kind of funny. But anyway, Jew, Paul, let's just get the background here a little bit. Paul is a Jewish Pharisee, okay? He said he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He, uh, I think the new perspective on Paul, which was like, I think in the 80s is when it came up. I could be wrong on that, but I think it was in the 80s. So it's not very new anymore, but they call it the new perspective on Paul. Uh, as we talk about this for a while, but Paul is a Jewish Pharisee uh, and he gives multiple references to passages from the Tanakh, right? If you go through Romans, uh, Romans 9, you see Exodus, Ezekiel. And what he's doing is he's discussing the messianic line. He's not talking about salvation. In fact, he talks about the promise of Abraham. And if you go into, and there's a lot of clues to this. If you go to the beginning of Romans 9, it says, hey, to my kindred, my brothers, the, the Jews, and he's talking to Jew, a Jewish audience. And then he also talks about before this, the promise, which is the promise to Abraham, by the way, that many, that the sand, that the, he will make up a great mighty nation of which the sand of the sea, you know, it cannot count essentially so there's going to be a giant group of people and that he's referring to that which is why if you read the of this idea of the elect that's chosen for salvation you have the wrong idea elect doesn't mean just chosen for salvation it's also it could be chosen for a purpose chosen for a service there's a lot of things that can be chosen here and what you'll first see Jews. here <laughs> right and that jews were chosen were they were the elect to bring about the Messiah. And then at the very end, it ends with Hosea, I will make not my people, my people. And then he goes from Romans eight to nine and then nine to 11, discussing how Gentiles are now grafted into the covenant with Israel. So the whole point is that, hey, God continually raised up Israel um, to give the Messiah and that he hardened Pharaoh's heart. And when it means hardened, by the way, in the Hebrew and stuff, it's referring to a strengthening of the heart. So Pharaoh was already rebellious against God, and then he strengthened his heart against God further. And then later on, God gave him the strength to continue with his, his rebellion already, the intended rebellion. God, and 
this is what we call a judicial hardening where God goes, okay, I'm going to take what you already have, and I'm just going to give you the strength to do what you already want to do. And there's a same thing when it says that God will send people in or his wrath, like wrath works in two different ways. There's what we call direct wrath, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Burning it down to the ground and indirect wrath, which is simply removing the hedge of protection, essentially going, all right, I'll let you go do what you're going to do. And I'm going to let you go and be destructive because that's what you want to do. So I'll be here ready for you when you come back. Kind of like what we do when people are addicts and they are acting a certain way. We eventually might mm-hmm. go, okay, fine. You need to leave. And when you're ready, come back to rehab. But right now you are not. You right. Because that's what the interactions. Right. Exactly. So that's really what's kind of going on there. So. Anyway, she says it starts in verse 16, but that does violence again to the text, because if you read anything in a vacuum, it can be manipulated. So if you're taking the Calvinist stance on on Romans 9, you're missing all the free will language that's already in that. Like mm -hmm. no one's avoiding Romans 9 here, right? The end of Romans 9 saying that the reason why um, uh, the Jews missed this is because they did not do it in faith. You have have even here where we're using the NIV, NIV that she was using, that that God is boring with great patience the object of his wrath. If he's if he determined them to do it, why is he, he he's boring the he's and with great patience the thing that he told him to do, that he decreed <laughs> him to do? That doesn't make any sense. He's bearing great patience on his own decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess is there some regret going? With myself is what God's doing. <laughs> So, right. so it's important to say, note that election is covenantal language. It's not, uh, and that's why people talk about corporate election, which is the idea of being in Christ is what saves. So, and I, though I, I use Norman Geisler's example because I think it does it does a good job, which is God pre, God elected the bus and pre uh, predestined the destination, right? Uh, but there's all, more discussion we could get into predestined, uh, but he. He uh, elected the bus, not the passengers. This bus is on its way to heaven. You can get in or get off. Mm-hmm. That's that's the point. Like then predestination. Uh, if you look, uh, actually, I was talking to Jonathan Pritchett about this, um, and Dr. Pritchett was saying that this is actually used in other Greek philosophers, and it's the same thing when it's like Brian and I predestined that we were going to record this at one p.m. Uh, Central Time on Sunday afternoon, we predestined it. We predestined crap all the time. That's what we do. Mm-hmm. And so, because this really is saying, I planned for something. So it's not saying like, you didn't have free will or anything to do that. It's just saying we made a plan for it. It's not really even this discussion of predestination in like a deterministic, fatalistic sense. Yeah, so, we can even say that we plan to, at the end of this episode, have a really fun surprise. We don't, sorry. But we have a really fun <laughs> surprise for all those that are viewing it. So all those are viewing it would be like the bus and salvation. Um, those that decide to view it <laughs> are the ones that are going to see the surprise at the end of the episode. Right. And I think that's if, if we're applying that to salvation here with with God, when it says, what if he did this to make the riches of his glories known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? He prepared the bus in advance for eternal life. That's that's what it's talking about. And I, I, when you say that as all that's an individual selection for heaven and he's it's also an individual deselection for everyone for destruction that just doesn't make any sense you end right up and the, there's a reason destination there's a reason why he talks about israel as his kinsman and they talk about gentiles as a whole this is holistic covenantal language and now that the gentiles are included in said covenant and then the jews might get upset because they don't like 
that the Jew that the Gentiles are included in this. But then he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I am allowed to have mercy on the Gentiles. That's yes. basically what he's saying here. So uh, and this is why it's like really important to understand how like a, a first century Pharisee would write, because you, th these are things like the Jewish community would understand when they're reading the same with any of the people because it would make sense to them in their language but to us we miss some of that context and the way language was expressed back then so it's important not to read it with a 21st century western eyes and expect it to be as specific as you want it to be uh but again i don't want to get too much into romans 9 any further because yeah. we we already have episodes on it we'll probably do more episodes on it but also because trinity radio did two hours of uh, two uh, a two-hour response to Christie on this on Romans nine alone. So I feel like we should bring the rain on everything else. She says. Yeah. And I'll just end it with when she says at the beginning that she can't justify any of these verses, we didn't say here anything new about Romans nine that hasn't been said for literally a millennia or more. And so the fact that she couldn't find any of this information just blows my mind. And it's um, pretty low hanging fruit. You can find the stuff pretty easily anymore, especially in the YouTube world. Yeah especially the way that she read it is something that's fairly modern uh, to the Christian church in the form of Calvinism. Right. You don't Augustine, have to like Augustine kind of spearheaded it at the beginning, but it really didn't really come into full fruition in the church until the Protestant reformation and after. Right. I mean, you don't have to buy Brian Abasciano's, uh, you know, multi-part commentary on Romans nine and spend hundreds of dollars on it. Now, like you can, you can find this information pretty well. Although I do want that set because I bet you there's a lot of good stuff in there. But anyway, <laughs> all right. Uh, Psalm 137.9 is her next thing. Let's let's hear her complain about that. And passage that really caused me to question the Bible was Psalm 137.9. And you've probably heard it. It's a popular one that is used within the deconstruction community to really talk about these atrocities in the Bible. And it says this. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rock. Now, it is really important to understand the context of this verse. This is what's known as an imprecatory prayer. Um, it is praying evil against your enemies. It is a lamentation. It is an expression of grief. Basically, what this psalmist is writing is uh, about how they were treated so badly by their enemies, and so they want to repay them for what they've done. And this is often justified by Christians in this way. You know, well, they were just expressing themselves. They weren't actually bashing babies into rocks. They just you know, wanted justice. They wanted revenge. But my problem with that is that this is supposed to be the inspired word of God. God is supposed to be inspiring every word of this book. And God never condemned them for praying this prayer. He never said, hey, don't, don't think that way. Don't, don't be so vengeful. Don't be so angry. Don't, don't wish for the harm of innocent babies. No, this is, this is perfectly fine in God's eyes. And this is perfectly fine in the eyes of Christians today who defend it and justify it. But Jesus came and he said, turn the other cheek, love those who hate you, do good to your enemies. That is in complete contradiction with this verse. And these are God's people that are praying it and God isn't condemning it. And I just have a very difficult time finding moral value in a book where the, the people of God, the people that are supposed to represent God in the book, are rejoicing over the thought of harming innocent babies. That doesn't make any sense to me, especially when you consider this is also the pro-life crowd. And I would imagine that Christians today don't feel that it is an appropriate thing to 
find joy in the thought of harming babies. So I find it really interesting that because of the context of the time or just because it's in the Bible, it is justifiable. And I just don't find that to be justifiable. Oh my gosh. It's so crazy. I wonder if she's just as offended uh, when abortions take place, they throw a baby in a barrel. So for first off, like, because she's like, this is this pro-life crowd. I, I, that That's just a particular annoyance of mine. Where I'm like, oh, okay, so cool. Are you, do you hate abortion then? I mean, if that's your objection, first off, and you're going to take the super wooden literalistic approach, are you just as firm about abortion? Because if you're cool with abortion, but upset at this passage, congratulations, you're a hypocrite. And I shouldn't take you seriously. Yeah. And the psalmist, David here, right? He is, he's showing his humanity here. And just like to prey on a little bit of current events right now, just like pro-life Christians right now, who we've seen on Twitter calling for the Gaza Strip to be raised to the ground, kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? Vengeance makes you see blood and makes you be enraged and makes you say very vengeful, retaliatory things. Right. That's, well, that's human nature. <laughs> right. And I mean, that's going to be right. That's going to be what you want to do. Now, let's unpack Psalm 137, nine. First off, she needs to stop using the NIV because it's trash. Like, I, like I just I, I grew up with. It's like not even the Bible. It's so basic to what is actually. Yeah, it's so watered down. I was like, get rid of it. Like there's and I before someone says it's very accessible. I get it. And I'm not saying that you should never, ever, ever, ever give it. I mean, if you have an NIV and that's all you have, use it. But like wow. use the NLT. The NLT is like the NIV, but good. <laughs> like, like, so. It's okay to have ESV. There's so many options. New King James. I like. I'm care. I use the ESV, but I always tell people to be careful with it because of it's got some heavily reformed biased translations in it. But like, I don't know. Otherwise, if you're familiar with those areas, you can just kind of use a lot. Use it. But anyway, Psalm 137.9 is the conclusion. So again, uh, context is uh, Chris Christy Burke's kryptonite so (laughs) psalm 137 9 is the conclusion to saying what has been done to us let it be done to babylon she talks about by the way she doesn't know that there's like she doesn't know how to bring other interpretations of romans 9 out but she can she knows the term imprecatory prayer like yeah one what we had the answer already there (laughs) right lamentation if it's a lament it's meant to be just that a personal grief and lament It's not something that one of the biggest problems that anyone could ever do is read the book of Psalms and think that it's again, the is ought fallacy that everything that yeah. is there ought to be. This is also showing the fact that it's okay to be human and pour out your heart. And even if it's anger and it's always like you pour, you leave it at the feet of God. Like that's the whole point. Like mm-hmm. when, when bad things happen, you can really pour it out. And he's not saying, by the way, he's not over here like wanting that. Like, well, actually, let's just let's read this. Let's read this. Yeah. Verses one through eight. Okay. Ahem. In the NIV. In the NIV. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Because so Babylonian captivity, Zion being destroyed, right? Okay, we're, we're, they're exiled right now. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. There for there are captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. 
May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy, remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what has done, been done to us. And then happy is the uh, that if you jump into that happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Makes more sense, doesn't it? <laughs> does, does that sound like he's saying he's happy about it? It doesn't. He's saying that happy is the one that does it to you because they were happy when they did it to us. So when they, when, when Israel fell, like when Israel fell, and they experienced the same thing. Their women were raped and murdered. Their children, they watched, destroyed. And Edom, the Edomites, were supposed to be their brothers. And the Edomites betrayed Israel and sided with Babylon as Israel was raped and murdered and pillaged by this these wicked people. And, the, and of course, when this was happening, the enemy was happy about it. They were like rabid, a rabid, rabidly happy about this destruction. And he says, and then that's where a daughter Babylon doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. He's saying that that same thing that happened to me will happen to you. And when they do it to you, they're going to be just as happy as they were to me. Yeah. And this is ancient nearest Eastern trash talk. And you have to just kind of understand that in the old Testament, we see a lot of that with, you know, when it says we will destroy your women and children, it's just like saying, um, it, well, it's talking about like seizing uh, a military outpost, right? There's no actual women and children there. Um, it's similar to when you like have a football game, like, right, I'm a Michigan fan. We killed Washington that game. Are the players literally dead? No, none of them. You say, oh, we mopped the floor with them or they got murdered, right? That's it's all talk. That's trash talk. We use it all the time now. And if you were to take that, in the same wooden way that she's taken it, you'd expect that every sporting event ends in a mass murder and everyone, all these bodies are getting cleaned up off the field. No, that's not actually what's what's going on. But she's right. removing that context from, from all these verses. Right, because most people don't actually know that that's what, like, there's par parts in like the same book. Do you really think that they're just like really dumb cavemen from back in the day and they don't understand stuff? Or do they have a language like we have where they're slaying and other things to be taken into context? Like like you said, if 2,000 years from now, you picked up Brian Bodie's uh, journal when he watched us win the, the Wolverines w win the national champion, he's like, we killed them. And somebody read that and was like, oh my gosh, like this guy was okay with killing that yeah he's pro-life <laughs> yeah wow i can't believe that this pro-life crowd would say that if you, that is like the exact same thing where it's like well you removed what hyperbole is you mm -hmm. removed what that was you you disrespected the culture brian lived in and you hijacked his words and twisted them same thing with that like there's parts of the old testament where it's like and we went and we destroyed them all. And the next next verse, it says that same people that were all destroyed, allegedly. It's like in the next very next paragraph, it's like, and the, the group of people rose up again against them. And it's like, yeah, it's not actually like blanketing this statement of like, we actually did that literally. Plus, again, the Holy Spirit is not removing the human method of communication. It's not right. removing hyperbole from the text. And it's exactly the obvious when you read it.
<laughs> and well, it is. And right again, right there, when he's like talking about it, it's like so obviously where it says tear it down. They cried, tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who dashes your infants against the rocks. And yeah. he's not saying I'm happy. He's saying happy is the one who does this because he's saying whatever happened to you, it, I hope it had like. Not really, I hope, because he's not even saying that. He's just like kind of warning them in a sense and lamenting against them, but saying that th when this happens to you, they're going to be just as happy. It's not even like he's not even hoping that it's done. He's actually mourning the tragedy. Like that's actually a picture of the tragedy of how evil the deeds that were done to Israel was. And even if, let's say he was hoping it and saying that they, he wanted to do that to them, which is not what he says, but even if so, there is still that very human element and the Bible continually goes out of its way to paint its people like David in a bad light. Like it's the only religious book that, that goes out to say that, hey, these heroes of the faith, they're really jacked up people, aren't they? Just like you and me. Like <laughs> it's the only book that does it. All the other ones like look at the prophet Muhammad and how he never makes any mistakes and he's wonderful and perfect and still loves nine-year-old girls but we don't talk about that and that's gonna get you the death penalty if we heard you say that will anyway point is here is that she, that's not what he's doing he's not even hoping for it it's not he's not asking it he's lamenting that it happened to them and saying that when it happens to babylon the same you'll feel the same demoralization that i feel in this moment that's what he's saying yeah. and when the holy spirit moves for the writers to write it's not to say that god is agreeing with everything that they're writing down that would be, again, to commit the Isot fallacy. And I think this is the first part of scripture that she starts using that. But many things God had them write down, he didn't condone, right? Even Jeremiah 19.5 talks about that, that he didn't even didn't even enter his mind that they would they would do such things. So what, what does that mean? That God didn't know? No. <laughs> Doesn't mean that God didn't know and he's just writing empty language on, on paper through humanity. And so I think her her understanding of inspiration is quite flawed, which I think has helped spiral her out of Christianity as she reexamined these texts with a faulty lens. Right. The Holy Spirit. Yeah. So her view of inspiration is oddly wooden in the same way that fundamentalists often have it. And because of that, she reaches the wrong conclusions. And that happens all the time in the TikTok atheist community, too. I've heard them use like a very wooden view of inspiration all the time and actually this kid gets kind of silly. So um, she says, God never reprimands them for this psalm either. And I just wanted to make sure that I clarified how wrong she is because God, like he never corrects it. Like, first off, that's a psalm that David wrote of a song. So again, even if we assume the very worst of what he, what if you really take, if we take Christy Burke's interpretation of this, that he really was saying to throw them against the rocks, which is not what he was saying that he happy is me. Who's going to do it? Because guess what? Israel didn't, Israel didn't rise up and destroy Babylon. That's not yeah. what happened. You know? So, um, she says, God never reprimands them, uh, for this psalm. But Matthew 5:38 says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But only, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go on one mile, go on with them too. Give to the one who begs from you, and you do not refuse the one who would uh who would borrow from you. So Jesus, when he comes and makes all sorts of challenges and corrections, it seems like to me he would challenge such a view. 
Uh, she literally uses this verse actually after saying God never condemns this. Yeah, it's so funny to me because you and had this in your notes. This is the first verse, but she's saying God doesn't 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 ever condemn this. And then she says, like I don't know, fifteen seconds later, God says, uh, "An eye for an, is not an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth." I'm like, you literally just corrected yourself. You said God never condemns this, and then here's God condemning it. <laughs> yeah, she gaslights her own audience here. Nebraska's twelve nineteen through twenty one is quoting Deuteronomy thirty two. 35 and it says vengeance is mine says the lord throughout scripture god corrects people on not taking vengeance out jesus even says to hate someone is to commit murder in your heart the psalmist is an example of how one might be angry but we are told to be angry and sin not in fact the bible goes out of its way to paint its again its founding fathers as i mentioned this earlier uh in a way that reveals their faults so again all this stuff is important to understand then she says, this is all perfectly fine in God's eyes. She says that after all this, this is in the Bible. She says this is perfectly fine in God's eyes. She's either lying, dishonest, obtuse, or can't read. <laughs> One or the other. This is perfectly. <laughs> exactly. Again, TikTok ex-evangelicals are not a good source to get your theology. The passages above actually say the opposite. So the, what I just read here says the opposite. God doesn't say it's fine. Uh, he actually says that he hates those who spill innocent blood. So we're going to just call this a swing and a miss by Christy Burke. And the fact that it has hundreds of thousands of views and people listening to her tells me that people have no idea what they're actually listening to half the time. So Jesus said to love your enemies. That's in contradiction to this verse is what she says. Well, Christy, who's speaking to one, Psalm 139? Who's speaking in Matthew 5? In Psalm 139, we have David, a flawed man. But in Matthew 5, we have Jesus, the Messiah. So who do you think is correcting who here? Yeah, the moral here is actually quite powerful, right? That plus she's using 20th, 21st century lenses to even try to read this. And she's reading it very anachronistically. Uh, and she's not understanding the culture. Again, this is from the psalm was ancient areas in trash talk lamenting she even said it so she understands the type of prayer it is and uh, but god's people are flawed so are we i'm flawed will's flawed and god uses flawed people and even when we're in the middle of our failings to still bring about his will and to still bring about goodness and she'll mention this is going to be in the part two but she mentions at the end where that uh it's not good that god just doesn't reward heaven to good people. And that is so far from the truth. I'm so happy that God isn't doing that because it would not have included David and it would not have included me or will. Exactly. It goes, it gives you, it also, the other thing is like, because he uses flawed people, it gives you hope. Mm -hmm. Like that's the whole point. The Bible is like redemption. Like it's about redemption from your flawed humanity so there's a hope in christianity where she's like i don't know my ultimate purpose in, in the universe well then you wonder why people cling to something like christianity where it's like despite me maybe being a, someone who abused children despite me being somebody who may have beaten my wife or this despite me being a an ex-drug addict or whatever i'm not those things but, but you don't get my point but like this despite those things I have hope that i can be redeemed and become a new creation and become transformed by the truth of Jesus Christ, and I have a hope that I, I don't have to be identified by those things anymore that I used to be where I was a horrible person. Like, that's the hope of Christianity. And that's, you know, also why you and I get annoyed with Christian cancel culture and all that stuff, because yeah. 
there has to be forgiveness and reconciliation. Otherwise, we're hopeless and we're just encouraging people to keep being bad people because we did never gave them a way out. Yeah. And the psalmist is showing like just the pure depth of our anger when terrible things happen, right? Mm -hmm. Our children are being dashed against the rocks. We are going to have extreme righteous anger against whoever did that. And it's going to take us to dark and terrible places like it's taking that psalmist. But Jesus says to not give into those base desires to turn the other cheek. And actually, everything, vengeance is God's, not ours. Everything going on in Israel is a great example of that. When when uh, when they came in and and raped and pillaged Israel, that was there was a very strong feeling by the Jewish people to respond in a very violent way. And mm -hmm. it's hard to sit there and be like, well, they shouldn't do that. It, when you understand what that would do, like you went and murdered a bunch of our people. And the idea is like, how would you like if that happened to you? That's kind of his whole kind of one part of his point in this psalm is like, how would you like, how would you feel if this happened to you? You know, you didn't treat us with dignity and respect. And if that happened to you, you'd be just as tore up. So that's the idea here. So Jesus tells us not to give into our base desires. So what we're told to do is look down the abyss of the most terrible evil that we have within us and confront it face to face and turn away from it and be peacemakers instead to be transformed by the renewal of our mind to turn the other cheek when we don't want to. Uh, so, and this just says it's pro-life crowd, by the way, which again, God never says it's okay. But again, I wonder if she ever applies that uh, the other way around. So, yeah. and I, so and again, just to reiterate, notice how God, David doesn't write on God's behalf here. It's a personal psalm expressing his darkest despair. He has seen the children of Israel killed and the pain has caused families. And he wants his enemies to at least understand the pain that he's coming from. Why? Because that way, that way they could understand the cruelty they subjected others to. He's not taking joy in the act of killing babies. And in fact, he never does. But in the idea that his enemies could maybe understand the very pain that they inflicted upon him. So anyway, Brian, do you have any more to say on that passage? No, I think that was a good summary. Obviously, once again, I'll point to the fact that she said there's no justified explanations for these passages uh, again we're not saying anything new here this is easy to both read from the text as we put it in context but also there's plenty of people saying the exact same thing um so uh, maybe a little bit of more research she needed instead of just going down the headlong into the deconstruction movement and without any desire to reconstruct um and uh like i said this will be a part one of a part two after this, uh, part two will include Deuteronomy 22, Deuteronomy 20, and the funniest one of this whole stretch is John 3.16. So uh, definitely tune back in for, for part two of this because we're going to get into even more of these verses that she's using. That just one out of context and two, she's drawing some crazy conclusions from them that uh, just shows how flawed her, her lens is with reading scripture. 100%. So join us for part two of our response to Chrissy Burke's five verses that led her to deconstruction. Don't forget to like and subscribe to this channel and support us on Patreon if you want to support our work here. And uh, yeah, we'll see you guys soon on The Church Split. So take care and God bless.
And guys, if you want to avoid seeing obnoxious ads like this, we gotta be strong, we gotta be healthy. When you wanna feel nice and strong and satisfied, you gotta check out Good Ranchers. Right now, go to goodranchers.com, use promo code Knowles. Or that. We also wanna thank Free Life Soap, because I don't know about y'all, yes. but I got a new shipment of soap yes, in. Yes, I did. Here yes, sir. And it was great. Or this. Hi guys, my name is Will, and I'm here to tell you why you should be a student at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. Or that. To get to that momentarily first, I want to talk to you about Daily Wire's most trusted privacy partner and premier sponsor of this show, ExpressVPN. Are you aware that your browsing data is constantly being tracked and monitored? Please support us on Patreon. We do not want to annoy you filthy heretics with any sort of ads on this show. So when you're a Patreon subscriber, you also get access to our apologetics classes and other video content a whole month. Of things. You can support us on Patreon for as low as $1 a month.